I don't know if you're like me, but um, I don't know anyone personally who lives in the Ukraine. I have some ministry acquaintances that uh, live in the countries and serve in the countries around the Ukraine, but I don't know anybody in, from the Ukraine. So, so most of this current war and conflict has been kind of, for me, like at the 30,000-foot level, where you're seeing it from the eyes of the media and whatever you're getting from the news feeds. And so I call it kind of like the 30,000-foot level. But recently, a friend of mine posted a picture on Facebook, two pictures actually on Facebook. And the first picture was from about six months ago when he was in the Ukraine meeting his friend at his friend's house, a Ukrainian friend in a middle-class neighborhood in a beautiful little home, and they're sitting there smiling and having a meal together. That's the first picture. Six months ago, they're sitting there smiling, having a meal together. The next picture is the home completely obliterated, hit by a Russian bomb and completely gone. Now, the family, thank the Lord, the family wasn't there and nobody was hurt, but their entire place, I mean, it's just like you see on the TV, but now it's on a Facebook picture from a friend who's sitting there smiling in this beautiful home to now there's nothing there. It's completely gone. And it, and it takes this 30,000-foot picture of the war in Ukraine and zooms it down to a half-acre plot with real people, real faces, and one of those faces I actually know. That changes how you see it, right? That changes things when you're standing way up here, and then you come down, and it gets real personal, and you see a real person, a real human being, maybe even someone you know. And, and that's kind of where we find ourselves in the passage that we're going to look at today. We're, we're going to take this passage and this time frame that's going on from up here at the 30,000-foot level, and we're going to zoom it down to an actual family and a real human being. So let me set the stage first from the 30,000-foot level about what's going on in Israel, and then we're going to zoom it down. So Israel's been moved from being ruled by the judges, which we've talked about, to now being ruled by the kings, and it turns out that the kings are not, not much better than the judges. That's what's so ironic about this. They ask for a king, they get kings, and the kings don't do much better. We just saw it on the video, the northern kingdom, they're 0 for 20 of kings who followed God and honored God. So things aren't a whole lot better. They've experienced a civil war. There's been a split, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And not only that, they're in conflict with the nations around them. So some of the neighboring countries, there's problems and there's division and there's fighting. The great prophet of the day is a prophet named Elijah. So Elijah has been the one who has been the spokesperson for God. He speaks on God's behalf. He calls the people to remembrance of the covenants and the laws that God has made. And we've talked about those in this series. And he ultimately, he calls them to repentance when they worship other gods. That's their great tragedy. The great thing that uh, turns them to the side is they start worshiping the gods of the neighbors around them. And whenever they forget their covenant relationship with God and what that's supposed to look like and who the true God is and how they're disobeying his law, Elijah reminds them of all that. But in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah will be taken up into heaven. And Elijah's ministry will be done here on earth. And he's going to be, he doesn't die. He's one of the two people in the Bible that gets taken directly up into heaven. And Elisha, now this gets a little confusing, Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha succeeds him as the great prophet. And the spirit of Elijah comes upon Elisha. And he now will be the spokesperson for God. And he now will be the voice 
of reason and the voice of calling people back to faith. So that's the 30,000-foot level. Now I want you to drill down, think about it like this, drilling down to that half acre, that real person in real time. The town is Shunem. The tribe is Issachar. It's near the Valley of Jezreel. It's north of the Mount of Gilboa. And do you know where all that is? Not me neither. <laughs> so that's probably part of the point. It's a small little place. We were kind of joking to, uh, in, in pastoral meeting because Pastor Mike looked it up, and on Google Maps, you can find it. So if you want to look it up, look it up on Google Maps. It still exists today, but it's a small little place, and we're zeroing down to this story about a real person in a real time zone where all this chaos is going on around him. Civil war, kingdom divided, bad kings, conflict with the neighbors, and serious kind of conflict, war. And here's what happens. Here's the first part. The first part of the story, we're going to see the hospitality of the Shunammite woman. Interesting about the Shunammite woman, we don't know her name, but she plays an important role of, of helping us to see who God is and how God works in the real world with real people. So here's the first few verses, verse, starting in verse 8 of 2 Kings chapter 4. One day, Elisha went up to Shunam, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. Now, these are narratives, and as we go through narratives, I always want us to remember that these are real people in real time and real history, and one of the best ways for us to kind of wrap our heads around this is try to use our imagination and our, put ourselves into the story. And so I'm going to invite you to, to put yourself in the story and see through the lenses of the Shunammite woman. There's a lot of different characters. This is the character that I kind of want you to, to see through her lenses and her eyes today. So here's what's happening. Um, she's a wealthy woman, the passage tells us, and she realizes that Elisha is a holy man, he's a prophet, and she wants to help him in his ministry. So what all she's doing is trying to show hospitality to a man who's a prophet, and she knows he's a holy man, she's heard what he's talked about, she's seen what he has done, and she wants to be a part of his ministry by supporting him. She wants to provide for him a place to stay when he comes through that region. Just a simple thing, prophets were typically men who didn't have places to stay, so they're on the move, and so she was going to provide that. And it's interesting, guys, as, as you think back a little bit through the thread, um, some of the things that God had called his people to, and we see this happening. We see this woman, this woman, this Shunammite woman, living out the practical side of the faith. She's actually doing what God had intended for his people to do. She practices hospitality, and that's what God's people were supposed to do for one another. They were supposed to look different than the rest of the world, and one of those practical ways was to care for one another. And so what we're seeing here is this woman who is simply just walking in obedience. And God has done a work in her life, and, and she is going to be hospitable to this, to, the, to this prophet that comes through her town. So it appears that this wealthy woman is just being faithful and obedient to the law of God. In the midst of all the chaos, here's what we're hoping that you'll see today, in the midst of all that chaos, there are still faithful remnants. There are still faithful people, people to God and what God has called them to do. If you remember Elijah, 
Elijah before Elisha. Some of you might remember the story where he's on Mount Carmel and the fire comes down from heaven and destroys all the prophets of Baal and shows everybody that God is the true God. Well, the king at that time wanted to kill him for that. So he runs off and he hides. And one of the things he says is, I am the only one left. You ever felt that? I'm the only one left. God says, well, you've been faithful, Elijah, and that's awesome. But you're not the only one. There's still 5,000 who are following me and being obedient to me. What we're seeing here, guys, is we're seeing this picture in the midst of all this chaos. We're seeing one of those people. We're seeing this one who is being faithful. There's always a remnant. God always preserves a group of faithful people. And with all this unrest and all this chaos going around, she is one of the faithful remnants. And she said, this holy man, I'm going to try to support him with what means I have. I'm not a prophet. I don't have opportunity to do all these things that Elisha is doing, but I can provide for him a meal and a place to stay. It's a beautiful picture, I think, of her living out her faith, using what she has in order to do God's work. And so she's providing this for Elisha so he has a place to stay when he's coming through that region. And then the man of God responds. So the next piece is Elisha and his response. So we've got the hospitality of the Shunammite woman, and now he's going to respond. And I want you to hold on to that idea, the man of God, all right? The man of God is going to respond. This is verse 11. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber, and he rested. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. And when he called her, she stood before him. And he said, and he said to him, say now to her. Now it's kind of interesting because of the fact that he's a prophet, and she feels kind of awed by that. They're speaking through his servant, Gehazi, all right? And he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? You've done all this for us. What can we do for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, When this is done, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, "All at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord. O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Elisha is grateful for her hospitality. He wants to say thank you in some kind of meaningful way. He offers to use his political influence. He, Apparently, one big change between Elijah and Elisha is that Elisha seemed to have a different relationship with the commanders of the armies and the kings, where Elijah, most of the time, they're trying to kill him. Elisha seems to have some sort of way that he's being dip diplomatic with them, and he says, hey, you want me to use that influence? I want to do something nice for you because of what you have done. Your faithfulness to what God is calling me to do, Elisha, your faithfulness to helping me do my ministry, I want to be able to repay that in some way. And she indicates that it's not necessary, that she's good. That's kind of what she's saying here. She's saying, I dwell among my own people. Everything is good for me. I don't need that. But then Elisha finds out that she doesn't have a child. And in that culture, we've talked about this before, in that culture, to not have a son who would carry on your lineage and also take care of you in your old age was a spot that we see many, many couples throughout the Old Testament. And they, they find themselves in this place, and they're, they're in a place of sometimes desperation. In her sense, she had gotten to this place of just resolve. I've just accepted it, and I'm going to do God's work and do God's ministry and help out the prophet when he comes through town. But she doesn't bring up that she doesn't have a son. 
Elisha's servant notices that. And he says that to Elisha, and Elisha says, guess what? You're going to have a child. And you can see how deeply this is weighed upon her by her response. As much as she hasn't spoken it, she has felt it deep inside of her because she says, don't, don't, do not say that to me. And, and do not lie to me. And, and don't get my hopes up is what she's saying. She's saying, I know you're a prophet, but what you're just saying here, this is next to impossible uh, where I'm at in my life and where my husband is at in, in his life. And we have not had children for all these many years. Don't do this to me. And, and in seeing that, it's not that she's being argumentative. I think we just see the pain and the weight. And she's like, I don't even want to hear this. And she says, don't lie to me. Can you imagine saying to the prophet, don't lie to your servant? And the prophet's saying, I'm not lying. This is what's going to happen. And it came true. The next part of the story, it comes true. Verse 17, the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring as Elisha had said to her. The promise is fulfilled. God does that. He does these amazing things, right? And he fulfills this promise and it's a beautiful picture. And imagine all the emotion that she's experiencing, right? We're, we're doing this story through her eyes. Can you imagine now the, the emotion that I'm going to have a son, a child, and just what that must have been like and how she must have been talking to her husband about that and just how that must have made her feel and all the excitement and all the energy from that. And it was prophesied by the great prophet Elisha and it's happening. And then the next part of the story. Tragedy occurs. When the child had grown up, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servants, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. Put yourself in those shoes. The child that you've been promised from the great prophet had grown to enough years that he could go out to the field to help. But there he is, sitting on your lap. This is, there's two parts of this passage that really gripped me, and this is, the one, this is the first one. Sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. Sitting there on his mother's lap. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind and went out. Can you see the picture of what's going on in her heart, in her mind, all the confusion, all the despair? She takes him up to the man of God's room, doesn't leave him in his room, puts him on his bed. Some commentators are thinking that this could be a little bit of like a bitter, like, okay, you told me I'm going to have this child. This child's dead. Um, it's your responsibility to fix this and figure this out. We don't know exactly what her emotions are. It doesn't tell us here why she does this, but she takes him up and puts him on the bed in the extra room that they had built for Elijah, or Elisha. And for me, the crux of the passage is the next section. And if you've lost me, I really want to invite you to come back because this passage has weighed on me this week, and I just believe that it is a message that can encourage us and give us strength today. But what she enters into in the next part of the story is called bitter distress. There is a great bitter distress that she is going to go through. And so this has happened and there's this deep sorrow in her, and 
there's a bitterness that is actually happening and it's all so weighty and so heavy. And what she does is after she places him in that room, she called her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he was surprised by this. He doesn't know that his son is dead. She holds him till, till the baby dies, the son dies, not baby, son dies, puts him up in the room, says, I need to go see the man of God. And he says in verse 23, why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor the Sabbath. He's like, there's no reason for you to go see the man of God. And she says, all is well. Okay? I don't know what all that means. You can go in the commentaries and try to figure out where that's coming from. But right now she's just saying, just get me to the man of God. Everything's okay. Just let me get there. She saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's a Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? It's a great picture where the, the, Elisha is concerned. He cares. He sees her coming, and this is not the Sabbath or the new moon, so he too is surprised. And he's like, something must be wrong. Go find out what it is. And, when she, and she answered, all is well. So when Gehazi goes and asks her, she says, all is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught, this is the picture now, put yourself into her shoes. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. There he is, standing there. This woman that he had prophesied would have a child. She has been nothing but trying to be an obedient remnant, one who follows God and is obedient to him, has shown Elisha all this hospitality because of that. And Elisha can see without a doubt that there's some bitter distress going on, and he says, I don't know what it is. The Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me, but it's clear that she is in bitter distress. And then he said, then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Listen, many of us have experienced this bitter distress at the loss of someone dear to us. For some of us, it's been in the last year. We've had several people who've lost family members in the last 12 months. For some, it's been longer. My dad is 91 years old, and he struggles with dementia. 70 years ago, 70 years ago, his 14-year-old brother was killed in a farm accident. My dad was 21. Actually, he and my mom were on their honeymoon when his little brother was killed in a farming accident. They had to track him down. In those days, you didn't have cell phones and all that. They had to track him down to tell him so they could come home. Even today, with a degree of dementia, he will get teary-eyed when he talks about it. You see, how long ago something occurs doesn't change the distress, does it? When we have experienced bitter distress, the length of time and how long ago it was, whether it was a day ago or 50 years ago or 70 years ago, it's still there. There's still some of that distress. Listen, th this is important this morning, and, and I hope you stay with me. She has the right to be distressed. She should be distressed because what has happened? 
Her son has died. That is something to be distressed over. Her only child has died. This is to be distressed over. Sometimes as followers of Jesus, we sometimes miss the point that there are things that we should be distressed over. And sometimes for us, it hasn't been a death. Maybe it's been a long-term emotional and painful relationship separation. For some of you, that's what it's been. Maybe you haven't experienced the distress of a loss of a loved one, but you've had an emotional or painful relationship that is separated to such a degree that you have experienced bitter distress or some other sort of life situation that has left you in despair, that has left you disillusioned and in bitter distress. Why is that? Why does death and loss and separation and brokenness in our world bring us to such bitter distress? Is it because we're just weak and we aren't strong enough or not tough enough? No, the the reason is because that's not how God designed it. You see, when you and I are experiencing bitter distress at those things, that brokenness, that loss of a relationship, that separation by death, whatever that painful situation, someone has sinned against you in a grievous way, We are to feel distressed because that's not how God intended it to be. Those kinds of things should bring bitter distress because they bring bitter distress to God as well. God doesn't rejoice when those things are happening. When this child dies, God is reminded, like the Shunammite woman is reminded, that we live in a sinful, fallen world and death occurs. And so God isn't brought to joy when he sees all that because he knows that he's designed us for joy and hope and relationship and sin has marred all of that. And so when you're in great distress, we are to be reminded that we live in this side of heaven where great distress happens because sin has come into the world and things have marred all of that and bad things happen. Really hard things happen. Distressful things happen. Bitter things happen. And and just to remind us that when we experience bitter distress of soul, we're not alone. Naomi was one of those characters in the Old Testament. When she got back to her homeland, she said, call me Mara because I'm in a bitter place because of what God has done. That's how she saw it. He's taken my husband and two sons. King David, when the child dies at is conceived in his wrong, sinful relationship with Bathsheba. He is distressed over the death of that child. When his son Absalom rebels against him and is killed in a rebellion, he's distressed and in great bitterness of soul. Jesus himself weeps over Israel when he sees that Israel is in rebellion and it causes him great distress. He weeps when he sees that his friend Lazarus has died because he knows that wasn't his father's intent for when he created the universe and created all this, that people should have to die, but sin was going to come into the world, and he knew that was going to happen. But he's distressed nonetheless. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says, I'm stressful unto death. And when he's on the cross, he says, my father, my father, are you forsaking me? The distress is deep, and the distress of soul, when we're there, we're not alone. And we just drilled it all the way down from 30,000 feet to a woman with a son in Shunem who is bitter and distressed. Not because Israel's at war, 30,000 feet, 
not because the kingdom is divided, not because of the apostasy and rebellion of the nation, which stuff that we look at throughout all these books, not because they've forgotten the law of God, but because her only child has died. And I'm going to say she's right to be in bitter distress. Because that's a horrific thing. Sometimes we find ourselves at that place where we're like, I should care about what's going on at the 30,000 foot level. And I should care about, care about these big issues in life. But we find ourselves in great distress and we're just trying to get through the day. Sometimes the sense of pain we're experiencing is so crushing. Sometimes the depression so deep. Sometimes the confusion so real. The anxiety so powerful. The sense of hopelessness so overwhelming. Or the fear of our future so real. Or the loneliness is so deep. And we don't know if we can make it through just another day. And I know that. I've been in the ministry long enough that I've seen that plenty of times. And in saying this today, I know without even knowing everybody's story right now that some of you are there or have been or are right now where you're like, I'm just trying to get through the day. 30,000 foot, yeah, Ukraine in a war, that's a big deal, but I'm just trying to get through my day. And you're saying, is there any hope? Is there any good news when one is in such deep, great depth of bitterness and despair and distress, is there any hope? Is there any good news? Because I'm just trying to get through today, right here, right now, in the real world, with real pain, real suffering, real struggle. The next part of the story is the response of the man of God. I want you to hold on to that. The man of God responds. This is what happens. He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, don't greet them. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned and met them and told them, the child is not awakened. Verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on the bed. So he went in, he shut the door and behind the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went and he, and up and he laid on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again, and he walked out once back and forth in the house, and he went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came in to them, he, he said, Pick up your son. And she came in and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then he picked up her son and went out. This is a strange picture. If you went back in the first Kings, you would see that Elijah does the same thing and brings the boy back to life. In Elijah's case, he does this three times. We don't know exactly what all this symbolism is, face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, eye-to-eye, limb-to-limb. Some commentators say it's kind of this picture of something that was understood back at that time in, in the culture around them, that it was almost like my life for your life, my body for your body. It's eye-for-eye, mouth-to-mouth. I'm, I'm giving you my life force, and if it doesn't work, um, May I lose my life, is how some commentators see how this 
what, why he's doing it like this. I don't know exactly why he's doing it like this. That's really not the point. That's where we get caught up in. But what's the point? The child's alive. He comes back to life. The son is brought back from the dead. The man of God does this. There is, of course, another man of God. His name is Jesus, right? He was sent by God. John chapter 8 says this, verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. There is a man of God who was sent by God. It's interesting, and I just want to say this, at the end of the Second Kings passage, that's where it ends. There's no more in the passage about it. She picked him up and went out. Child comes back to life. But how this all connects us to Jesus is that this other man of God who was sent by God, he was also God. John 14, 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. This man of God was sent by God, but he also is God. And he experiences bitterness and distress. Don't forget this part as we come into Easter week and the Easter weekend. Matthew 26, 37 and 38 tells us, And taking with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. That is a picture of of a depth of sorrow that is hard to explain unless you've been there. And he's saying, this, this, I'm the son of God. I'm being sent by God. I am God, and I'm experiencing a sorrow even unto death. Like the sorrow that says, maybe I just want to die now and not have to go through what I have to go through. A bitterness of distress. Jesus is going to experience that in the garden. But here's the difference, here's the beauty. He conquered the greatest source of bitter distress. The greatest source of bitter distress is sin and death. And he's going to conquer that. Death and eternal separation from God no longer have to be the winners. Hebrews 2.15 says, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What he's saying in, in Hebrews is that for all of humanity is in a lifelong slavery of this fear of what will happen when they die. Because what he is saying is that there was always this fear of, I don't know what's going to happen afterwards. I don't know if I will have an eternal life. I don't know if I can be saved. Even if I believe there's a God, I don't know how that will work. The book of Hebrews says Jesus came and sealed the deal, answered the question, figured it out for us. That there no longer needs to be that fear and being slave to that fear because he has conquered it. And I think the two greatest fears is that and then how will I know if I spend an eternity with him? And Jesus, again, in a very familiar passage, John 3.16, tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have what? Eternal life. Those two things have been dealt with. So that the bitter, and I, and I hope you'll take this with you today, so that the bitter distress can be replaced by hopeful distress. Let me say that again. So that the bitter distress can be replaced by hopeful distress. It doesn't mean that distress won't happen. But the bitter distress 
can be replaced by a hopeful distress. This is what 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. He's saying, I don't want you to, to be confused about what happens and where people are who are in Christ after they die. He says, because we don't grieve like people with no hope. We have infinite hope. You talk to my 13-year-old right now about, we just had this discussion the other day because sometimes he doesn't always know how to express his emotions and stuff, and grandma passed away two and a half years ago, and it just came up in a discussion, and I said, so how do you feel about that? How are you processing all that? And he says, he smiles, he says, grandma's up with Jesus. <laughs> he goes, you know, I'd love to have her here, but she's up with Jesus. How much better could that be? He's not wrestling. He's not wondering. He's just stating it as a fact, right? Apostle Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. We don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Oh, yes, we're under distress, but it's hopeful distress. This side of heaven, there's still going to be pain and distress. Sometimes it'll feel bitter, but the only healing that can come will come from the hope of what Jesus has done. He defeated the hopelessness of death. The threat of this passage is that there is ultimately one who resurrects the dead. You know that little Shunammite boy? He died again. Lazarus? I always think about these people who have been raised from the dead. They've got to die again. You know, Lazarus? He died. The thread reminds us that the ultimate resurrection from the dead is what Jesus has accomplished. There's ultimately one who's resurrected from the dead, and not for a moment, but for all of eternity. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never perish. Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, to the distressed, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And bitter distress will be no more. It's my prayer that from this passage today, we can take the truth from the 30,000-foot level and zoom it down to the half acre of your life. This great truth and bring it down to your individual life. It's my hope that from this passage this morning and this message, you will find hopefulness in your distress. I'd love your distress to be gone, but I do know that in the midst of your distress, you can have great hopefulness because of what Jesus has done. 
It's also my hope and prayer that as a body and a community, we would come around one another and we'd carry each other's burdens when we're in the times of bitter distress. When I'm in bitter distress, man, I'm praying and hoping you're going to come around me and lift me up. And when you're in bitter distress, I want to commit to you that I'm going to come around and walk with you during it and through it. And that we would do that for one another. It's also my prayer that we would take this message to those that we come in contact with. Because there's a lot of people in our circles of influence that are in the midst of bitter distress. And we've got a message. And we've got a hope. And we have the opportunity to bring that to them. I hope that we will bring the message that bitter distress can be replaced by hopeful distress because Jesus defeated sin and death and by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he did all that. So I'm, I'm hoping and praying that as we gather at Lincoln, the Lincoln Park campus on Friday, we'll do that to reflect on this death and what he, has, what he did for us. And then right here next Sunday, I hope that we'll celebrate that he rose from the dead and I want to pray and hope that you'll bring someone new to that service, someone who needs to hear about the man of God who came down from heaven and took our distress on himself and replaced it with hope, replaced it with eternal hope. This is the good news of this passage today. It connects us to the one who ultimately dies on the cross and resurrects from the dead so that our distress can become hopeful distress. That we can have some hope in the midst of the heaviness and the weariness. And I just know, as human beings, we have that. And some of you are experiencing it right now in profound ways.